it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer and the brewing industry, and have a conversation with the people who make the industry what it is, and see what we can learn from them. And this week, we meet Leanne White from social and market research firm Insightfully. Leanne, or Lenny to her friends, is a former journalist and media advisor whose career has progressed to see her move into the field of data research, especially in the area of public opinion. Her business, Insightfully, is an opinion and market research and strategy company. But Lenny and her husband are also small investors in a brewery, Maddock Brewing on the Gold Coast, and so she has, to some extent, turned her expertise into an interest in data in the brewing industry. And with our recent focus on squishy data on this podcast, I thought it would be a good time to speak to Lenny about what makes good data and how breweries should be critically interpreting the data that they have available to them, especially when making decisions based on it. It may be a little bit selfish, but I always work on the basis with these conversations that I speak to people and ask questions that really interest me, assuming that these topics might also be of interest to others in the industry. And that is especially true this week. As a journalist who has to interpret data and meaningfully communicate it to the brewing industry, I found this conversation especially interesting and valuable, and I hope you do as well. Leanne White, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Hi, Matt. Uh, that's Lenny to my friends. It's Leanne on your uh, LinkedIn profile, so I always like to let people, uh, I never want to be too familiar with guests. No, no, that's fine. Um, but yes, you're right. Leanne on the LinkedIn and uh, on the website. So that's um, a good start. Thanks. Now, I, I, I should say by way of introduction, well, in my introduction, I talked about your um, progression from journalist, uh, regional journalist to media advisor, now into the world of uh, data research, and especially in the, the, the field of public opinion. We're all very aware of you know, in, in an election year, particularly opinion polls and, uh, you know, the, the, the surveys that are done. Um, but I, I, I guess you come to it from a particular interest because you are a small owner in a brewery, uh, a little uh, Belgian brewery on the Gold Coast. Yeah, that's right. So as I always start, maybe you can sort of tell us, uh, you know, who is Lenny White and, and a little bit about your career progression from journalist to a brewery owner with data research on the way. Yeah, um, well, I am a Queenslander and I started out in journalism. Uh, so I was at the Chronicle in Toowoomba for a few years, actually. And then I went to work for a local MP for a few years and sort of got a bit of an interest in, in politics as a media advisor. And then my husband and I went overseas for about 10 years. We lived and worked in Ireland, in Canada and in the UK. And we both, he, he's still a journo and I uh, did a lot of journalism work there for uh, organisations like the Irish Independent and uh, The Guardian in the UK. And then I uh, got uh, involved in a big research-based campaigns agency, so a, a global campaigns agency that conducted a lot of 
um, market and opinion research to underpin its strategies and uh, underpin it, its campaigns. And from there, I moved into the polling space, the data collection and polling space. So I was doing a lot of focus groups and surveys, measuring people's opinion, um, not just in the context of, of political campaigns, but issues and advocacy. So um, after working there for 12 years and moving back to uh, Queensland, uh, I started my own research agency called Insightfully. Mm -hmm. And at Insightfully, I really do specialise in market and opinion research for uh, advocacy and campaign. So it's a really niche space of market research. Uh, and uh, it's it's fantastic. I really love it because we we're really quite at the at the pointy end of decision making in Australia. So I've got a lot of clients who are uh, conducting uh, uh, opinion research to understand what people think, so that we can use those understandings to help our clients craft their strategies. So and many of them like to talk to government to uh, create policy change and legislative change. So that's really where the landscape is for, for my business. And uh, it's, a, it's a small business. And as you very well know, Matt, when you're a small business owner, <laughs> it ends up taking up a fair bit of your life. So uh, that's where the business is at at the moment. It, it's interesting, just even the way you describe that, it sounds like quite apart from speaking to breweries as we do really in this um, podcast, there's a lot that we could be looking at um, towards the end of this conversation about what the industry needs to do to reach government because adv government advocacy, you know, particularly from the you know, IBA point of view or even the Brewers Association, if we go larger, um, is something that we're increasingly trying to do to change legislation. But let's just step back. In, in uh, keep talking about you for for a moment. So with, with with all of that career, none of it sounds vaguely centered around uh, the drinks industry or the brewing industry. Journo's love a pub. I, I I know that much. But how did you come to be a uh, you know small owner in uh, Maddock on the Gold Coast? You're so right about um, Journo's loving a pub. When my husband and I worked at the Guardian uh, in London, going back to the mid noughties uh, we used to work on the Friday night shift, so we'd be subbing the late and, you know, as, as um, I'm sure many of you listeners may know, you don't put the paper to bed till about 11pm or midnight, but there would be a period of time when um, it was, you know, there was a, a bit of downtime towards the end before you'd get to the final flurry or the journos had finished writing their front page news story for the next day. So we'd all go over the pub and have a pint or half a pint and then come back and put the, put the, uh, the paper to bed between sort of 11 and 11.30 p.m. Um, and so, you know, we're, we've always been foodies, my husband and I, and uh, enjoyed a drink with that. We actually had our, our we were, uh, my husband and I, I'm not sure if I told you this, Matt, but we were one of the world's first video uh, food bloggers. So we had a food blog called crashtestkitchen.com, which we started when we were living in Canada in 2005. And the premise of Crash Test Kitchen was we were, m you know, making dishes and, and, you know, drinking lovely drinks with those dishes. But it was like the anti-Rick Stein, the anti-Jamie Oliver, where, there was never one we prepared earlier. We were doing it absolutely on the fly. 
and um, if you um, if we stuffed it up, we stuffed it up and we showed that to our audience, but then we'd have another go. Uh, so we've always been interested in, in food and drink. And uh, my husband, a couple of years ago, uh, well, a few years ago, kind of got onto that, you know, craft beer revolution. And he was a real craft beer enjoyer. And we're living now here on the Gold Coast. And, uh, you know, we were uh, always down at the local craft breweries trying what was new and uh, enjoying the, the, uh, the, you know, the new styles and what was being put out here on the Gold Coast. And he met uh, J uh, Jimmy and Annalise from Maddock Brewery uh, when they were still um, producing beer out of their garage-based brewery. And they were expanding to Ashmore, Southport here on the Gold Coast to open a proper tap room and looking for investors. And so we, um, you know, we, we took a small share in Maddock Brewery, which is, uh, I think it's Australia's only Belgian style brewery owned and run by Belgians. And, and Jimmy and Annalise have both been trained in the, in the Belgian brewing style. So it's pretty authentic and uh, it's just up the road from us. And so we're now um, into the craft beer family through our enjoyment of craft beer, but also our small share in Maddock on the Gold Coast. And we have had Jimmy and Annalise on the podcast before, and I'd really recommend uh, you know listeners who haven't heard it um, and maybe have joined us since go back and, and, and find it because it was a great chat about... I, I just love the way that Annalise uh, talks about you know, she came to Australia on a school exchange and she's got this beautiful saying that, you know, you put one, once you've one foot land is land in Australia, you never get it back kind of thing. And that's what brought them back. It was a lovely uh, sentiment. Um, but one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk to you, quite apart from we've been talking a lot about squishy data, and I wanted to look a little bit about data in the brewing industry. But since you've had a, a you know, more than just a, a casual consumer perspective of, the brewing industry by having a financial stake in a brewery. Have you taken more interest in the data that is available in the brewing industry? Yeah, a little bit, as much as possible and yep. as much as possible fitting that in within, you know, owning and running my own small business. Uh, so it, it is interesting that there, there's not a, a great deal of really uh, a strong industry data around that's cheaply available for craft breweries. We all know that, you know, many craft breweries are kind of uh, trying to grow or running on the smell of an oily rag. Uh, you know, they're not like the big the big breweries and so they can't necessarily afford to buy into Ibis World data or any of that really expensive commercially available data. And so, you know, you kind of then left potentially to uh, to suck up whatever information you can that's out there that you don't have to pay for, which means that we might be looking at, uh, you know, a survey that was done by a small organisation that, you know, found that the newest beer style or the biggest trend in beer might be sours or it might be, uh, you know, American IPAs or NEPAs or whatever it might be uh, that might appear for free in the, in the media, so often the news media with, with a hook or an angle. So um, there is a little bit of that free data out there, but I think it's worth just thinking about uh, what the quality of that data is 
because when we're not paying for it, we just have to question ourselves as to, well, where is this coming from and who is paying for it and why are they willing to put it out there in the marketplace for, for us to have a look at? It's interesting that there are a couple of things that I want to drill down on in, in that because you, you do talk about the very expensive data that we see, such as um, IBIS World. We get a lot of media releases from um, that company, you know, giving us the headline numbers and the, the story that they say that that tells. And like any product, they're selling a product um, and, and trying to make it look as engaging and as valuable as they can to make people want to buy it. And in this case, people are breweries. Is that data, you know, valuable of itself? Because a lot of people, I, I just get the feeling that a lot of people put a lot of um, premium on the value of that data and that they base their decisions almost purely on data like that. You know, is it, are small breweries missing out by not having access to that data you know, in, in, in their own little patch? Yeah, possibly. Look, and I, I, I don't want to cast any aspersions on Ibis World in particular. No. I'm sure their data is, is really, really great. Um, but I think the point I wanted to make a bit more was, are we paying for that or are we kind of just at the whim of, of someone who wants to make something freely available? Um, I haven't actually seen any Ibis World data on, um, on the brewing industry, but I have seen some other stats come out from other parts of the brewing industry, um, be it craft beer um, sellers, for example. And you've just got to ask yourself, so when, being, a, being a, um, you know, a person who deals with opinion and behaviour research myself in my job, I always ask myself if I see something in the paper and if, you know, someone's come out and said that, you know, um, uh, you know, non-alcoholic beer, for example, is this, and this is a really good example for us to talk about. I think Matt say non-alcoholic beer is the you know the biggest growing area of the market, and we should all be getting onto low alcohol non-alcoholic beer. Uh, and I'm not I'm not um, necessarily saying we should or we shouldn't. I just want to yes. you know yep. use that as a very broad example to in to you know help people understand how we can interrogate data. So I always ask three questions when I see a data point or data points in the in the news media or in a podcast or something like that I always think about who why and how so who is that data from where's it come from who's putting it out what are their credentials you know you can always go and look, try and look them up and say well you know who, who are these people and that leads you to the why why do I think they've they've done this survey or they've collected this data what is their motivation so, for example, you know, we know at the moment that the alcohol, the, you know, I guess you could call them the, um, the alcohol opposition lobby. There's a the very big public health lobby who really wants to reduce, uh, and in some cases, rightly so, uh, in, uh, the consumption of alcohol uh, across the country, but also in some cases, perhaps, um, you know, really putting a lot of extra regulatory burden on what is ultimately a, a legal activity. And so we want to ask ourselves, you know, who's funding this? Is is there some hand in the public health lobby here that's, uh, is there an investment perhaps or, or something where there may be um, uh, a motivation there that we just need to be aware of? And the last thing is how, how is this data collected? What methods did they use? And, you know, 
just like anything else, like making craft beer from home to right up to CUB, it's exactly the same in, in collecting statistics. It's how long is a piece of string. You can do a, uh, you know, I could do my own Facebook survey and ask all of my friends what was their favourite type of craft beer and I would get a certain answer. Um, and that that's a really accurate answer for my friends, but they don't necessarily represent the beer drinkers of Australia. So you just want to ask yourself, you know, sample size, of course, and I don't know how much you want to get me down into the weeds here, uh, Matt, about um, the how and what methods are robust, but uh, I guess I'm, um, you know, I'm cheating in a way because that's my background. So I'm always able to interrogate things like sample size, method, uh, weighting, representativeness and so forth to, to get a bit of a gauge on just how well this, these, these data points represent what they're saying they represent. And that's, you know, that's up to the consumer as well to, to our craft brewers is to say, well, you know, let's, let's not just assume that this data point is saying that this is what all craft beer brewers in Australia think. It might be what all Australians think. And there's heaps of people in Australia who don't drink craft beer. So we've mm. just got to be a bit aware of all of those key points around data so we can understand and interpret better who is putting it out, why they're doing it and how they've done it. And, and again, the, the the point that you made about you know the you know what what we and, I, and I, I'm trying to think of a better term than anti-alcohol lobby because they're not necessarily they're they're pro health, but that yes. guides you know and and as you say there is a lot of benefit you know we do need to be more conscious and mindful of our consumption of alcohol and that is a very but and just as the pro alcohol lobby we become um, very selecting in the data that we use and share because we are advocates in, in, in our own way. And that's where, you know, in, in your who and why um, questions about data, you know, advocacy, um, advocacy by its very nature isn't trying to educate, it's trying to campaign. And it's so, so you, you, I, I guess you are self-selecting the data that most, closely aligns with what you want to the, the agenda that you want to push um, in, because you're campaigning for something um, and I, I see that over and over again there's a lot of data that we get sent that doesn't necessarily align with other things that we're seeing and we have to as journalists I have to ask myself is this showing a new trend or an emerging trend or is the data flawed um, or is the data off a very small base and alcohol free is a very good one you know as, as I've said repeatedly on the podcast I have never seen more media content um, mainstream media content about alcohol free beer because and, and as a journalist when I see it I can see that it's a sexy story and journalism is about getting people to read a story and in data like that, if you've got somebody telling you, well, here is the data, for most journalists, well, we're not here to test that data. We're here to report on it. And this is a damn good, this is a man bites dog story. Um, you know, there's something interesting. There is something that people will read. Ultimately, I don't care if it's true or not because, you know, somebody else is saying it. Um, but as somebody that reports on the brewing industry, knowing that brewers read our data, you know, there is an impact um, when, when we report on something. So we try and interrogate that and see it. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, 
it, it's a really, really hard one because news and coverage of these, the reports themselves are, are a product that a data company or a business are supplying. But then it's also a product for media that want to get and then quite often people see it when that data that is, you know, multiple levels of product is then reshared by people whose interests it benefits. So, you know, you, you see alcohol-free brewers constantly sharing the pro-alcohol-free data because it, it benefits them. Um, and it, it, that's something that terrifies me as when I see how many small businesses then make decisions because it's almost an echo chamber of they're seeing the data repeatedly and it's almost um, affirmation of that data when at no level of the um, publishing of that data is it being questioned and that and then that terrifies me yeah that's right and I think actually that that brings me to think Matt that you know we had our three points of interrogation there who why and how but there is another point and you've just made made me think of it here, which is where where was that information published, right? So if if brewers are reading something in, say, um, you know, the Guardian or or you know, Women's Health magazine or Men's Health magazine, for for example, um, you know, well, media outlets have agendas too, and so if they're publishing, there's always a la- layer of gatekeeping. Uh, you know, and many media outlets probably wouldn't, um, you know, wouldn't agree to that or, or admit to that. But it's a, it is a fact. And so we've got to think, well, wh- again, why would this media outlet be publishing this particular piece of data? And I think, you know, that's without blowing your trumpet too much at Bruce News, you know, you guys are having listened to, you know, your podcast and, and reading your news, you know, you, you really are part of the brewing industry. And so I think, you know, people in the brewing industry understand, I do, and I'm sure others do as well, that, you know, you're, um, you, you guys have a motivation because this is, you're supportive in a way of the brewing industry and you want to make sure that the facts and the figures that are out there are as accurate as possible so that people who are using that data are having the full information. Whereas if, if something about non-alc was in, say, Men's Health magazine, we might say, well, that their, their motivation's not really to help uh, br- the brewing industry understand properly its audience. Their mo- their motivation might be something else. So you know, it's it that we also have to look at well, where has this been published, and what sort of interrogation have those data points been given, and was it just to create an interesting headline, or was the motivation to help the industry? understand the information that's around so that they can really make properly informed decisions about their business. <laughs> yeah, like I look at, um, I mean, men's, without any criticism of, you know, of them, but when you look at um, various segments of magazines, you look at the vastly changing diet advice that we've been given over the last 10 or 15 years about what to have and what to avoid. And then, you know, five or six years later, it's almost the complete opposite advice that we're being given. And when you trace it back, it's often, you know, one or two surveys 
published by businesses that just happen to be, you know, like the, 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 the red wine paradox or, you know, the revesterols or whatever in red wine or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and completely overlooking the fact that the, the, the studies are often limited or the things, or it's, you know, as soon as you add alcohol, by the time you get a functional dose of anything, you're hurting yourself in a whole lot of other ways. Yeah. But, um, you know, and that's often because the data is in itself a product it's over it's overemphasized by media wanting to you know productize that you know generate readership for itself yeah that's right yeah and so i think i guess the point is really just uh not it's not that that surveys are bad or survey information is bad it's really just uh just let's be like anything let's have a bit of critical thinking here and think about who's it coming from why have they done it who's funding it perhaps or who who have they commissioned to do it uh, how's it being done but also where is it appearing and what's the motivation of that outlet so yeah i think it's important that when we're interpreting data for the craft beer industry we have to think about all those things and you know, it would be great. Annalise has often said to me, oh, let's do a really great big national craft beer survey. I'm like, I would love to, but these things are do require investment. Uh, and to do, uh, you know, as a pollster, I can tell you that it is not cheap to do uh, a, a survey properly. And so any, any survey that's done really cheaply runs the risk of not having really robust data. I mean, you can get lucky and, and you know, I guess I'm being a bit gen generalist here, but, um, you know, if something is done really robustly, it's, it's, it's probably had a fair bit of investment put behind it. And, and that's, again, you know, I, I, you've heard us talk on the podcast recently about squishy data and the challenges, and it's, it, it's true everywhere. America seems to have, because of the level of reporting that they do and the availability of information in, in, in the United States, the government seem to be very open um, with, with the, the data. They do seem to have higher levels of data than we do in Australia. But where do you go working in the industry and when you're making decisions with the the the, the managers of the brewery um, to to go to to get sort of market data or or what data do you look at and analyze to try and make better decisions? Ah, uh, great question. I can't give my secrets away, Matt. Um, but <laughs> actually, <laughs> no. The secret is, uh, yeah, it really. I mean, I, there's no one source of data that I would actually point to, and that's you know, it's. I'm not an expert in uh, looking for beer industry data to, to support the business that I'm a shareholder in. So I don't want to give anyone a bum steer. I just probably like many other people involved in the craft beer industry, I'm interested and if I see or hear something in the media or coming out from um, industry media, I, I listen to it and I follow it, but I just try and give it that extra layer of um, interrogation. I think which probably points to the fact that there's not a great deal of readily available robust data out there for the craft beer industry in Australia specifically. Uh, and maybe there is and maybe I'm not aware of it, but I think together between the two of us, we probably would be <laughs> aware if there was. Um, so I think, you know, there probably is a bit of a gap and, and that's probably a function of the fact that the industry, uh, it's not, uh, you know, it, it's 
what would you say? It's, uh, I don't know if it's fledgling, but it's certainly, you know, it's not the mining and resources industry that's got billions of dollars to throw at these sorts of things. You know, there's a lot of people who are in small business who are really, really working hard trying to make things work. And so, you know, the best that we can do is to try and uh, just be thoughtful about the information that's out there and you know if there if there were to be more information available great but as I said these things require investment and I don't think we're an industry where there is a lot of data freely available which is probably just a reflection of where the industry's at in terms of its um its its contribution to GDP as a whole which is pretty minimal across Australian society it's not having a go at any particular data sources but one of the biggest ones that we do see in Australia and it's certainly shared um, very much by breweries um, is the, the the beer cartel survey um, that comes out every year um, you know and, and they, they put a lot of work into it um, it it generates a lot of attention for the brewing industry and that's a positive thing um, but in terms of making business decisions, on the data, um, you know, I, I can see why breweries that feature in it celebrate it and share it because it's good promotion for them. Um, you know, if you're the, the the best brew pub in a in a state, it's a great news headline. It's a great bit of promotion. Um, but again, that's also seems to give it a pro, a, a prominence. Um, and I'm just sort of looking at some of the data from the from the most recent one. Um, it just and correct me if I'm wrong, and I may be very may very well be wrong here. Is it a customer survey? So is it a survey of their customers? Not limited to their customers, but of craft beer drinkers. And so I, I would imagine that the majority of people who respond are their customers. But then it's more like every every brewery shares it because and and and, and this is the thing that I always find. You know whether it's the um, uh, you, you, you see a lot. Of, it, it's why a lot of magazines run awards, um, for example. And <laughs> we, we don't at Brews News because magazine awards are often a very small subset. You know, you, you get a dozen people to vote, or you might sort of cast it out. Um, you may offer some prizes. It's a very limited data set, but it promotes the magazine as much because all of the winners and it's just, you know it creates awareness and so it's free advertising for the people who run the awards um and i was actually reading david chang's um book over the weekend and he talks about that phenomenon you know the people who hold food awards or do awards they're businesses themselves and they're promoting themselves um you know yeah so. yeah that's right and i guess that just comes back to that that you know who who is putting out uh this data why, why are they doing it? And then also how, how are they collecting it? So I guess we could probably dig in a little bit there. And um, I, I believe that it may be, um, so they're customers, but also then they, they sort of, there's a bit of promotion with the industry to take part in the survey. And so but the industry may, push it out to get a better we, result for themselves. And yeah, all those so we may be missing there a cohort of, of drinkers who either are, you know, who are not customers or not connected in, in, in any way to those customers. So maybe they're not on the, you know, they may be really avid craft beer enjoyers, but for whatever reason, they may not be in the loop of, of getting an invitation to participate. And that's what we refer to as representativeness of sample. So 
for any survey, you want to try and um, get a representative sample of your of your of your sample universe. And so, in this case, if we were doing a survey of craft beer drinkers, we'd want to be representative of craft beer drinkers. Mm. But we don't really know what that is, and so it's difficult to get a representative sample. Which means we may have little. Um, quirks or bits of noise in the data that we're not aware of. And and so once again, look, it's, it's a completely valid piece of work, but I guess we just have to be conscious of uh, how it's collected and whether it really represents the um, craft beer, beer drinkers of Australia or not. And, you know, without being 100% aware of all those uh, factors, we, we just might take those findings with a bit of a grain of salt. I'm really glad you said it's a valid piece of work because I don't want in discussing it um, and even discussing it um, not critically in the negative way, but you know, questioning it um, to, to be diminishing it at all because it is a valuable piece of work. Um, but I guess the question that I want to come to is how should we be interpreting the answers and in breweries, which are a lot of our listeners listening, you know, um, implementing or you know acting on those results because you know one of the, the the first questions that i see celebrated this year is the stats australia's most consumed beer styles are pale ale xpa which again um i i look at that and i know how the data's come through questions to craft beer drinkers and on one hand the headline is australia's most consumed beer styles which to me sounds volumetric um yeah. on one level but then also um, hazy uh, have increased in the proportion consuming the style. However, pale ale remains the most widely consumed style. So the headline and the description, one seems to be talking about how many people are drinking it, you know, the number of people have reported it versus, you know, the headline saying the most consumed, um, yeah. which sounds a little bit more volumetric. And even it, it just sort of sounds, but, you know, I, again, when lager is, you know, down at fifth place with only 60%. You've got to be thinking, well, who who was surveyed here? Mm. And, yeah, and look, coming from a journo background, uh, you know, another piece of advice I would give is don't just rest your interpretation on the headline because headline writing is a craft in itself and you'll never get all of the information from a headline. You always have to look into the story to find out that information of, you know, the detailed information. So uh, what was it? Australia's, um, Hazy is Australia's most preferred craft beer style, was it? Uh, no, Pale Ale, XPA and Pale Ale. But that, that should then be among those who responded to the survey because it does kind of make it sound a little bit like it's it's Australians 18 plus, but was it all Australians who were surveyed or was it people who opted into the survey and therefore were interested in craft beer who were participating in the survey? And that's seen maybe information that didn't quite come across clearly in that little explanatory piece there. But again, I certainly wouldn't be switching all of my production into pale ales and XPAs, <laughs> which again, and the reason I focus on this is because I do hear a lot of small brewers or breweries in planning quoting this data to me, you know, not celebrating their result or whatever, but quoting these data, you know, these data sets as part of the reason that they make decisions. So it, it does yeah. seem to, 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 to matter. Um, and to be honest, I... Looking at this data, I actually think I would much rather see the breakdown of 
beer cartels own sales data as a much more valuable um, market, uh, you know, rather than what people report. Hey, actually, ex- explain to me, you know, what is the difference between surveys that people report behavior as opposed to studies that actually analyze active behavior. Yeah, analyze their their actual behavior. Yeah, look, there is a really big difference because we know that people don't always accurately report what they do. And that's why this is great for me as an opinion researcher, because my job is is not necessarily to report on their behavior. My job as a as a pollster is to find out what people um, what people's opinions are, which in a way is a lot easier because um, you know people know what their opinion is at any point in time. Uh, so so when we use big data, so a lot of a lot of corporations use things like their customer sales data to uh, understand how people are behaving. And then they go another step to model that to predict um, uh, potential trends and so on. So there is a difference between data that accurately measures people's, say, spending or usage behaviour versus surveys that ask people what they think because people aren't always 100% percent accurate in reporting um you know reporting what they may do uh, so so there is a bit of a difference there and again you just have to be aware of what um you know what the survey was about and, and where the responses came from and i would just also and then you, you mentioned there that the customer data is is probably more accurate that that stuff is gold though and that stuff is the that is the information that a business is built on and you know you, you don't just give that away that is that is highly valuable information that a business uses to make itself a success or not and uh you know i, I wouldn't um be be just opening up my customer data and I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't either matt and so you know we have to be cognizant of the reasons that that's not done is that you know these people are legitimate and very successful business people and you know um they've got to run a business which is perfectly legitimate and and, and, and that's a really good point there's no criticism to them in not doing that but i guess what you know, as you say, it's the, the data's gold, and that would be the con. Yeah, that would be much more valuable data, and it, it's why, for example, Woolworths um, has the most powerful data as the biggest retailer. They have the most powerful data going because they have the most sales data, and they actually see right across the country in more points than anywhere else how and what sells, and yeah. they keep that to themselves. They don't even in, include it in the. Um, uh, you know the, the the publicly available data that you can buy for a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, and there's reasons for that. But uh, but even then, you know, sales data is one thing, and you know, if I was a brewery and I did have access to some good sales data, whether it was my own or somebody else's, one of the things that's often quoted to me around the alcohol-free space is how successful it is in places like Germany um, and. Um, it, it's been posted, you know, because it's a very big part of the market in Germany. And people say, oh, look, you know, in the same way as IPAs, um, everyone for the last 20 years has pointed to the US saying that, well, craft beer is X percent of the market. Um, IPAs are, you know, the biggest thing. And if you go to any pub, you'll see five or six taps of IPA. And because Australia has similar sentiments, 
about craft beer, it's had a similar growth in breweries. There seems to be a natural assumption that the Australian market will conform in all respects to it. And so we've seen a big investment in IPAs, for example. And it's only with um, slightly more mature analysis of the American market. Their excise regime has drastically shaped um, their market compared to ours, where if somebody goes in and sees a little creature's pale ale and a um, fixation IPA side by side at the same price, they're also doing the additional calculation that excise, uh, not, not what the excise is, they're looking at the alcohol and going, well, I get more value out of this IPA and so I'll buy the IPA. And that's what drives We don't have that here. An IPA is much more expensive. There's a bit of a chicken and the egg experience going on here, right? Is that, um, you know, we want to know what people are interested in drinking in terms of craft beer styles so that we can meet that market. But also the market is shaped as well by the environment in which it operates. So your example there for the US is that, Um, You know, the IPAs seem to be very popular because they're so much on tap, but that is because they are cheaper to make and sell, which may in fact drive their their take up. So it may not, the take up of that may not be driven by actual personal taste, but it may be driven by price point, which is driven in turn by the excise arrangements. So, uh, you know, that's, we're really getting into the complexities there of the way that the taxation regime regimes in particular jurisdictions drive people's behaviour and governments know, and this is sort of, you know, the area in which I operate um, as an opinion researcher, governments know that pulling taxation levers will create behavioural change, which is why you have seen one of the most effective ways to reduce smoking rates over the years is be to is has been to increase the uh, tax on on cigarettes, uh, thereby increasing the price of cigarettes, thereby making them less affordable. So there are so many factors that go into consumption rates that you know I guess if we're business people we have to just have one eye on all those all the time but I also think as well you know um you don't want to get bogged down in that stuff you don't want to be making a beer because you think that this is exactly going to be what the data says is the most interesting beer at the moment you want to be making a beer because you love it and you think that your particular customer set will love it and that it will align with your brand and do well for your brand and so you know i know we've spoken a lot about data um today and that's because you know that's kind of a background from which i come but you know like you always say matt on when you're interviewing anyone so much of the craft beer industry is about passion and we don't want to take that out of the discussion oh absolutely but i i I guess the reason i I came to that and then the the other example i would give is alcohol free you know because everyone's talking about germany and the czech republic and saying well you know alcohol free is this percentage so of course it'll go there I think that a lot of people that are relying on that data forget that Australia already has the most successful mid-strength market in the world. And, you know, you could just as equally have German brewers going, look at Australia, 25% of their market is 3.5% beer. We should get into that market, except 
German, you know, that's the thing. Um, that there are a whole lot of cultural differences. So the data of itself, without additional analysis, you know, so even if you do have good data and you've got reliable data, there is a whole level of analysis to differentiate that data. I guess is something that is is very very important. And I guess that brings us back to our, you know, our four interrogation questions when we're when we're reading data. Remember, they were who's it coming from, why are they doing it, how was it collected, and the fourth one was where does it come from? From and we talked about, you know, where in terms of which media outlet or which source has it come from. But the geographical where is equally as important because if it's global data, if it's come from overseas, you know, we just again have to be aware that there may be different jurisdictional reasons mm. that are impacting. That, that are different to Australia, which, um, you know, I think we're in furious agreement here, basically. It may be a pointer to a trend, but, you know, understand the, understand the data. If, if Maybe that should be the subtitle of this, uh, <laughs> this chat, understand the data. Now, understand I, I, the data, but enjoy the beer. Also. Enjoy the beer, yes. <laughs> That's your now, subhead. <laughs> just before we, um, just before we, oh, I'm very conscious of time, um, and this one is a little bit self-serving. Last week you presented, um, and I've been wanting to speak to you for a while, it just happened that last week you presented about data for a survey that you did about podcast listeners. And this is something that I want to hear about, some data that I want to hear and apply in my own business. Um, yeah, but I think it's relevant to, to your listeners as well, listening to um, Beer as a Conversation. So um, I teamed up with a friend of mine who is a, a, a podcast strategist and producer based in Brisbane, but working globally, actually, um, Kelly Reardon from Deadset Studios. She's she's a um, sort of a global force. She actually invented um, Richard Feidler's conversations when she worked at the ABC uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Very well experienced. She and I termed, uh, teamed up putting her sort of, you know, podcast producer hat on and my really robust, accurate data collection hat on. And we've conducted what we think is Australia's most robust survey into podcast listening habits. Uh, we had a sample size of over 6,400 Australians to find out who was listening to podcasts monthly. And then we, uh, among those monthly podcast listeners, uh, 2,028 of them, we drilled down to ask them what their habits and behaviours were. And there were some really interesting data points I think that some of your listeners might find interesting in terms of opportunities for podcasts in the food and beverage market if um you know if I may be so indulged Matt to, <laughs> to, to give them to some you of your promote listeners. yourself because if, if it's good for us selling advertising I'm happy to hear it <laughs> <laughs> indeed uh, so food and beverage I'm looking at here so 14 percent of monthly podcast listeners in Australia uh, have listened to a podcast about food and beverage in the last month, which is is not one of the highest listening um, genres. The most interested uh, interesting genres to people at the moment are things like crime. I was going to say true crime. Yep. Yeah, and also health and well-being uh, and, and uh, things like society and culture and lifestyle as well. But we also asked people what they wanted to listen to. So we got this data on where the biggest gaps between what they are currently listening to and that what they would like to listen to. And we found that there's a really big gap in the food and beverage podcast market. So 14% are listening, but more than double that, 32% 
of regular podcast listeners would like to be listening to more food and beverage podcasts. So, and, and the other thing that, um, that Kelly, my, my colleague uh, or my collaborator, uh, as we say, we, you know, we did a collab here just like the crafties <laughs> do. So do we, uh, you know, data and podcast people. Uh, so my collaborator, Kelly, uh, you know, she makes a lot of really, you know, um, podcast that, that blow up basically she's very good at what she does and she s- says you know why don't you kind of mash up those genres mash up say comedy and food and beverage to to combine what's really popular and give people what they want now i do have to hopefully stress not here, true crime and brewing please no no i'm not sure that those two work together but i can certainly see comedy and brewing going together quite well which is why our comedy nights uh, absolutely go off like a frog in a sock every every thursday night and i'm sure other craft breweries do the same thing um but uh one of the um one of the markets that is most interested in more food and beverage bod- podcast uh, podcasts is males 35 to 54 years so in fact among that cohort 43% want more uh, food and beverage podcast content so you can see there's a market for it but again like everything there's a caveat we have to make sure that we uh, you know produce those things well and we also asked what what people don't like in podcasts and one, one of the answers was they don't like waffling uh, and they <laughs> don't like people going on too much well, I better shut up <laughs> <laughs> oh no I'm straight away if the shoe fits wear it for myself so oh, that, that's interesting and was there any um, data around advertising yeah yeah there was some really interesting so advertising work so um you know what what we call spots and dots advertising where an advertiser buys a 15 or a 30 second ad in a podcast um 80 percent of people can recall those but um also the host reads also work well as what well. we call the rallings effect which sabrina wants me to call this the bruised news effect <laughs> i mean you guys do a fantastic job of that i i am um in the top five percent of podcast listeners just because of what i do I, i'm listening to over 10 hours of content a week which is a small cohort so i listen to a lot of host reads and you guys often just i mean you've really made it a feature which is great um but and anyone who listens to the bruce news podcast knows exactly what i'm talking about <laughs> um but the other thing that really works well is branded podcasts so these are podcasts that are actually produced by a brand um so uh you know kel gives this example of esri australia which many of your listeners will know are the gps um people they they do a lot of spatial location data so they've got a product that's really kind of difficult to understand so they thought well how can we make a podcast that explains what we do and they mashed up with that true crime genre and they made this amazingly popular podcast in australia which is about how the police force uses that spatial data to solve crimes, so they're wow. matching. They're matching um, Esri Australia's spatial GPS coordinates, and they're using that to look at well, you know, how far could this criminal have travelled, and where are the patterns in their, you know, the places that the crime took place. And um, so the point I'm trying to make here is that brands can come up with interesting ideas to um, to host and create podcasts that serve them really well. And in that example, um, Esri, which was selling like a really complex and not a very sexy topic, unless you're kind of in that world, once they did this podcast, you know, it made 
the downloads were over um, oh, over a million, I think. Don't I'll quote me on that figure, it. but I know that the completion rates were over 87% and their conversion rates, so from listener to, to inquiries about their brand and then, you know, new clients, so their new client growth was, was incredible as well. Uh, so the, the, these branded podcasts where you can get a deeper engagement with your audience do really work, uh, where it's not just those little um, spots and dots advertising or the host reads, but you're actually, your, your, your whole brand is, is running through the entire podcast product. And um, that's really important. And the other thing is, you know, production quality, story arc narrative uh, people really really like podcasts where the um the the hosts are engaging and they like listening to the the, the people who hosted are really uh really good at what they do the interviewers are really good you know a lot of that's not it, it's not brain surgery you know it sounds really obvious but there is opportunity out there and if if you can do podcasts really well and I'm sure many of your listeners you know they're not just craft beer enjoyers they're they're in other businesses as well so I guess you know there'd be people out there who'd be really interested and um, you're very welcome Matt to put our link to the the key findings in your show notes. So if anyone's interested in downloading those, they can take a look and, and we've got some deeper data that's available as well. Absolutely. No, I'll, I'll, if you can send through the link, I'll uh, be sure to include that. So, well, Lenny White, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating. I just realized what the time is. Uh, so we better bring it to a close, but uh, this sounds like it's a chat. I'd love to continue over a beer. So thank you very much for joining us very early in the morning. Hopefully next time it'll be uh, uh, you know, more reasonable beer o'clock. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely have to catch up and do that, Matt. It's always great to talk to you. At Maddock, of course. Indeed, yes. Here on the Gold Coast with, you know, great, fantastic Belgian beer styles. Uh, two, po- two plugs in one podcast. There you go. Indeed. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. And that was Lenny White from Insightfully. You can find a link to Insightfully in the show notes, as well as a link to the podcast research that she co-authored. Now, if you work in the brewing industry, and I presume if you're listening to this, you do, and you're not alone, our listener feedback, and it's backed up now by some great research from Leanne, is that Radio Brews Use is where the brewing industry and decision makers turn for their insight and analysis. And so it's the perfect audience to reach with your message as well. And as Leanne told us, when they hear it on a podcast, they're likely to recall it. So we are a great place to do that. So you should be investing your marketing spend in media that not only you value, but that your customers value. If you'd like to find out more how you can do that, shoot through an email to sam at brewsnews.com.au to find out how you can advertise. We'll also be back this Friday with Brews News Week with all of our own insight and analysis of the last seven days of industry news. We'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.